Welcome to the first episode in our 30 for Net Zero 30 podcast series, where we'll be speaking with 30 climate action champions across the globe about real steps to take now in order to reach 2030 goals. Today, I'm excited to be joined by Sean Kidney, Chief Executive Officer at Climate Bonds Initiative, one of the key people behind the EU taxonomy and currently rather busy advising on green definition work in taxonomies globally, including in places like China, Latin America, and the EU, obviously. Sean is a fantastic uh, proponent of green finance and an energy source on his own, so it's too bad that we can't just plug into you. But thank you for joining us today. Thanks, Adam Marie. That was a very generous introduction. Uh, It's a joy and a privilege to be speaking to you again on this topic that you and I have been nattering about for some time now, uh, which is the growth of sustainable finance and the growth of capital allocated to climate solutions, which is, of course, my area of focus. And the organisation I work with, Climate Bonds Initiative, advises everyone from sovereign bond issuers to governments to corporations and, perhaps most importantly, investors, major investors around the world. We've got something like $34 trillion represented on our standards board, for example, about how to take this agenda forward. It's a lot of fun. And what's the biggest shift that you've been seeing? You know, as you, as you mentioned, we've been talking about this for a while, but um, I feel like there's been a huge shift kind of over the last two years, 18 months. W- what are you seeing? Well, I think the biggest shift that's palpable already is the investor enthusiasm for the transparency and visibility of the use of proceeds bond. I mean, we've seen green bonds grow like a rocket, currently about a trillion dollars outstanding. We've seen this year the growth of social bonds and sustainability bonds and even pandemic bonds using the same principle, the daughters of green bonds, if you like, which is around transparency of the allocation of proceeds and then reporting on the allocation of those proceeds on an annual basis. This has been very interesting. I've had major investors come up to me now and say that when it comes down to sovereign bonds, for emerging markets, they've now got a strong bias for use of proceeds formats because they really like the increased visibility and transparency about it. And I think that's um, a critical part of it. Of course, that is linked to the whole enthusiasm for doing something on climate. One of the things the green bonds market has done has showed that you can get a return and support the planet at the same time. It's a proof now. That's the whole point of this market. I mean, to the extent that green bonds now by issuers that are taking action on climate change are generally seen as lower risk than other kinds of bonds, lower risk of policy action affecting the cash flows of those bonds. And you see that differential uh, occurring in pricing benefits. So in US dollars and uh, euros, you now see definitive pricing benefit for the green format of the bond, even when it's a standard treasury bond. So that enthusiasm on the part of investors tied to the understanding that they can actually have a profitable uh, investment when it comes to the green format. And remember that bond investors are primarily defensive. That is, they don't want to lose their money. Larry Fink famously said he made money by not giving people yield, but by making sure they never lost their money. So green bonds have some very interesting characteristics, which is fueling this enthusiasm. In downturns, they hold their value. They even maintain liquidity levels in March when other bonds were frozen. And if you look at uh, the price performance of green bonds over the time, there's definitely an attractive uh, story to be told there, which means a lot of investors are coming in which are not even interested in the green aspects. They're interested in the capital retention aspects of it. And that's been interesting. That is very much a development of the last 18 months. 
So the greenium, I, I love that phrase, the greenium, which which is a far cry from from what we were talking about down back in 2014, which was, you know, it was so expensive to to issue. So it's good to see that you know evolving in the market. Um, as well as that that investor stickiness and and integrity, you're super involved in working with regulators and kind of driving the frameworks around building the, the, the green finance market. What do you think is one specific action that sort of needs to be taken over the next kind of two to three years? And 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 more importantly, who do you think needs to to take that to really embed this shift? The key reason why this market is working is because of a growing appreciation of risk. A big chunk of that is negative risk, the risk of being impacted by climate impacts, but policy changes and whatever. And that's fueling the central bank conversation, Mark Carney's Tragedy of the Horizon speech and so on. So we now have this whole idea that we need to be looking at a risk premium on, on investments that are likely to be affected by policy changes. And Against that, or rather attached to that, is there's a risk benefit in looking at investments that are less likely to be affected by policy changes. The work we're doing in taxonomy in Europe and in many other countries on the green definitions is fundamentally important because it identifies a pool of investments that are less likely to be impacted by policy because they are future-proof when it comes to the climate agenda, if you like. And that's becoming real now. If I was to ask for a change, I would say an appreciation of economies of at a government level of that risk. We're beginning to get it, but not enough. Investors get it, banks get it, central banks get it, but governments are still not looking at the extraordinary risks they face going forward. We've got a tingle of an idea of it as a result of this last year. The pandemic can be seen as a climate incident in the sense that uh, pandemics as a result of pathogens jumping between species and as a result of degraded environments, which is what this pandemic is about, have been predicted by the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC, for 30 years now. They've been saying we will face a, a 21st century of pandemics, which is consistent with past climate changes that we've seen. And um, Pavan Sukto, the current chair of the WWF, talks about this is the fifth pandemic of the 21st century and the one that got away. We managed to keep a lid on pandemics like MERS and SARS. They didn't get away. Um, we're going to get more of these. We're going to get many more climate shocks. When, of course, you begin to appreciate the extent to which these kinds of shocks will have a negative impact on the economy, it really increases your interest in heading off those kinds of shocks. Well, we're still in that process at the moment. You know, in, in Europe and the US and Latin America and India, we are in the middle of dealing with the fire, putting out the, trying to put out the fire. But as we come out of this crisis, we need to be excruciatingly aware of how to reduce the likelihood of shocks going forward. And frankly, that's addressing climate. You know, if we can hold to the IPCC's 2030 target of 55% carbon emissions by 2030 on 99 levels, which is what the EU has now adopted, but that's going to be a global average, then we can substantially reduce, not head off entirely, but substantially reduce the risks of all sorts of climate-related shocks, including pandemics, going forward. If we don't make that target, we can sign ourselves to a world of extraordinary volatility, weather volatility and everything, every other kind of volatility you can imagine. So if you're looking forward as a leader of a, of a country, 
understanding the extent of this risk, you know, at the moment we're effectively getting in aeroplanes that have a 50% chance of a major crash post-2030. That's the, that's the extent of the risk involved in the IPCC forecasts. If we can substantially and dramatically reduce those risks, we can maintain livelihoods, sustainability of incomes and development pathways. If we don't address those, we give those away. So if I was going to, to answer your question, if I want someone to do something now, I want at a government level an appreciation of the extraordinary economic, social and ecosystem risks that we're taking now and therefore, as a result of that, a heightened urgency to do something about them, mitigate those risks, which is what investors are now doing. They're already in that place. You'd like the politicians and the government to be long-term and focused. It's an, it's an interesting ask. It's an interesting ask. So other than um, you know your tireless work across the globe on taxonomy and trying to um, explain to people why doing something today is better than doing something tomorrow. Do you have on your own any any personal commitments? It's January, you know, resolution time. Do you have any personal commitments to, to net zero? Well, let me say that we are making progress on that. You know, note that the, the major government target change from 2019 has been that all the major economies of the world, and soon to be the US, so I'm sort of counting that in according to Biden administration announcements or incoming administration announcements, will have committed to 2050 net zero targets. We've seen Europe, we've seen the UK, of course, Japan, Korea, China's committed to 2060 net carbon neutrality, and so on. This is an extraordinary change in the space of, of um, 12 months. Now, there are direct implications for that because the trajectory of achieving that change is very, very clear. As laid out by the IEA, the IPCC, and many other bodies, it requires dramatic cuts by 2030. Most of these countries are still figuring out how to do it. But the point is they are now saying these are serious targets. They were not saying that at the end of 2019. So this change is beginning to happen. And now we've got to look at the whole issue of how we transition our economies to being low carbon and climate resilient. And I say climate resilient because there's an adaptation and resilience agenda as well. But, you know, with, with um, Prime Minister Suga's announcement in Japan and his maiden speech to the parliament, to Diet, was fantastic, committing Japan to 2050 net zero carbon and all the other countries that have come behind them and, of course, behind Europe in all this, you know, well, let's not dismiss that. What we now have is a clear message to corporations, investors, and central banks, for that matter, that this is happening. No one is sure about how it's going to happen. I can tell you if it's the taxonomy, it's lower risk of being affected by that change, but it is going to happen. Every major investor I speak to in the world now believes this is a certainty. It's only a matter of when, not if. So that is a big change. We are winning on that front. In terms of my own role, look, you've heard what I'm trying to do. <laughs> my goal is by the end of this year to have the leaders of Europe, China, and the US with, I guess, the leaders of Japan and the UK standing beside them, but the three biggest economic blocks saying very clearly we are fully committed together to 2050 targets and then by implication 2030 targets and the rest of the world, frankly, will freak because there has implications in every sector of the economy and that's what's got to happen, by the way. Everyone has to start looking at what they're doing. So, 
I think that's something that we will achieve this year, and I think it is something that is incredibly important to the change and more important the rapidity of the change we have to make to our global economy going forward. My simple target will be to massively increase green bond issuance. That's just a numerical milestone. But we're about a trillion dollars outstanding now. I want to get to a trillion dollars a year issuance as quickly as possible. It's probably going to take me two years, take us two years now rather than one year. But we're going to get there fast. Remember that the European Commission alone has committed to issuing $250 billion of green bonds in the next 18 to 24 months, uh, let alone all the other people that are now coming to the party here. So it's going to be a crazy, wild and fun ride. <laughs> that it is. And I, I think also in the in the green finance space, broadening out who is doing those issuances is going to be key to that growth. And we're going to see a lot of new actors and new industries coming in, including high carbon companies, oil and gas companies issuing green bonds. Total issued one a couple of months ago. We welcome that, thrilled at that, to finance sun power, solar in the US. We're going to see a lot more of this. I didn't answer a specific question which is what individually I'm going to do. Because I'm going to tell you, we have been caught up in the blame game of individual activity, which is a red herring. Most of what we have to do are systemic changes to our economies. It's energy systems. It's transport systems. It's urban development planning. These are the areas of the most important changes, which means our world changes around us and we change within it. So individual action is important from a moral perspective. Sure, my fund is invested ethically, for example, my pension fund and so on, and I try and minimise my footprint. But look, don't kid yourself. It's not about individual shopping decisions. It's about making sure that your government and your investors act with alacrity at scale. That's what we have to do. So let's keep an eye on the price here. Let's not try and befuddle ourselves with blaming other people for individual actions. The system will change around us. In 10 years' time, no one will have to think about clean energy because all energy will be clean. No one will have to think about the transport mechanisms because all transport will be electric or hydrogen. This is the challenge we need to make. It's an interesting point, the personal versus the collective, right? Because you can't get away from the personal because then you get into a place where you do get to the blame game and people are saying, well, it wasn't my responsibility to do that. So you do, you do have the personal as, a, as an intrinsic part of any kind of collective action, I do think. Let's, let's be clear. It's the role of the systems that we operate in. You know, As you know, the bulk of the world emissions for the last 100 years have come from about a dozen companies. It's not necessarily from individuals doing things. It's those companies maintaining their existing assets and sweating their, their equity, if you like, rather than leading to change. Let's look at the systemic issues we've got to do. So don't get me wrong. It'll be us individuals who will push for the change. But I don't want people to be fooled by an American individualism, if I may call it that, <laughs> into this idea that it just takes individual action to change the world. That is bullshit. What it takes is systemic change on the part of large institutions and governments. That's what we need now. You know, it's like a war situation. We need to have our large institutions reorganise the means of production quickly, rapidly, within 10 years. So buying a different kind of food to the supermarket is useful in terms of your own sense of understanding what you're doing, but is not actually achieving change. Making sure that the leaders 
in government or in other institutions are acting of alacrity is what counts here. So let's just let's all become activists for climate. Let's all be conscious of the risks to our lives, our societies, our children of not acting, which are really severe, unbelievably severe, and act accordingly with the systems we have built that have given us so much wealth and so much stuff, if you like, everything from, from cars to health systems to education systems, and let's make sure we shift those onto a sustainable footing. And then we can have a world that we can all participate, a shared and inclusive economy. And by the way, while we're at it, let's have a really close look at that word inclusive. We've learned something really hard in the uh, pandemic, which is that if people don't have access to healthcare, don't have access to income support when they're uh, ill and trying to make a living, then they will find themselves continuing to work despite being ill and the pandemic will rage as a result. To make sure that we all have a chance of surviving the next pandemic, and it will come, I can assure you, we need to make sure healthcare for all exists. We need to make sure that income support for all is available in a crisis. We need to make sure that businesses can be supported through these crises of transition. These become necessary minimal steps for the purposes of creating a sustainable society. That's the area we need to focus on. Apologies for my rant. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's that's fine. So I think I think the takeaways from from this conversation for people as they're setting their resolutions for the year are to sit down and look at your strategy to start using the taxonomy and other tools that are out there to accurately assess risk and risks that have previously been ignored or treated as a non-event. So as you said, systemic risk, risk to climate, risk from pandemics, those kinds of, of shocks to the, to the economic system. So sit down with your strategy and with the mind that these things can change and that that underlying framework that you build your strategy within is in fact something that could shift. Look, we've done something interesting in 2020. We have learned that volatility happens. <laughs> you know, yeah. We, we kind of forgot after 2008. And the story that the scientists are telling us is that volatility is now the new norm. And we have to continue to plan for that volatility. It is clear what the trajectory of change is. There is now no doubt that governments are acting, will and are acting on climate. I mean, the reason why solar is so cheap in the US, in India, in the UAE now, you know, it's cheaper than gas and cheaper than coal, is because of state action by Germany in 2001, bringing a feed-in tariff, and then state action by China with massive procurement of solar and then wind in the last 15 years. That has driven down the price. So that's an example of state action. Well, we're beginning to see the same thing happen with electric vehicles, especially in China, which is dramatically driving down the price of all the parts, batteries, and so on. And electric vehicles in a couple of years' time will be cheaper on a CapEx basis than ordinary cars, and they're already cheaper on an OPEX basis. So you've got these changes that are coming through, and we've got to stay ahead of them. There is no doubt that they're going to happen. It's only a question of picking specific winners within the pool of change and making sure that you are biasing towards the future away from the past. And that's the interesting thing for all of us now, including work, by the way. You know, I've got daughters looking at jobs. I'm saying to them, 
these are the kind of areas of work that are going to, going to grow and these are the kind of areas of work that aren't going to grow. It affects on all levels. Changes are coming and it'll be changed that if we're on the right side of the wave, we'll have incredible opportunity for all sorts of folks. The simple litmus test to look at a, a sandpit to play on is the taxonomy, which is way more than clean energy. It's way more than transport and property. It's also industrial changes, what the future of the steel industry is like, what the future of uh, shipping is like and aviation. It's across the board. Start looking and start looking for business opportunities in those areas. I can tell you that's what investors are doing. Excellent, Sean. So keep your head up, keep looking for change, looking for opportunities from, from, from the structural change that are happening. I think that's a fantastic takeaway for our listeners and really appreciate your time today and your insights and and wish you all the best to achieve getting those major economies to the table by the end of this year. I'm I'm looking for it. I'm going to hold you to that. Thanks, Anna-Marie. And thank you for the work you're doing at Ashurst in terms of promoting and pushing this agenda and alerting your clients of the opportunities here. It's really fantastic. Thanks for the opportunity to speak today. Thank you for listening to this podcast. We hope you found it worthwhile. To learn more about the issues we've just covered, please visit ashurst.com forward slash podcasts. This 30 for net zero 30 episode is just one small part of our continuing podcast series, ESG Matters at Ashurst. Make sure you don't miss any of our future episodes by subscribing via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're there, you can also listen to our other episodes and leave a rating or review. In the meantime, thanks again for listening and goodbye for now.